0: Each time I've been given the privilege of sharing with you this summer, I've gotten to share on a psalm of David. David easily, hands down, is one of my favorite characters in all the scriptures because of the the breadth of his life, the variety of experiences that he has had. He had the highest of highs. He's regarded as the most celebrated king in Israel's history. And he also had points of extreme failure and disappointment of personal doing, and also of points of which they were factors outside of his control. And yet when the scriptures describe the character, the person of David in in the book of Acts, he is described as a man who had a refined focus. Because he modeled a resilience through the ups and the downs, through the plateaus, every point of his life. You know what he's described as? The final word on him is that he was a man after God's own heart. That his ability to adjust himself, no matter where he was at, what he was walking through, he would adjust himself and continually use whatever situation he was in as an opportunity to refine his focus. To refine his focus. And that ended up becoming the point, the thread, that became the defining marker of his life. And what we're going to see here together as we explore one of his psalms is that there are moments in our lives that can help us refine our focus. There are moments that could help us adjust our lens by which we are viewing what we are walking through. If we, if we allow God to be a part of our situation, if we invite him in and we allow him to do what he longs to do in us, it, they, they become opportunities for us rather than points of um, discouragement and you know this. This is a choice. This is a choice, and I'm going to call these moments. These moments are actually much more common than we might recognize. I'm going to call them cave moments, because we have cave moments in our lives, and sometimes throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our month, some of us we might be in one. Just even as we share here together, these cave moments can be defined as, if we could put it this way, they, they have a variety of different definitions. One, we'll say they, they can be moments of relational turmoil between people we love, between ourselves and those we love that end up causing us to feel isolated. It could lead us straight into a cave. Uh, There might be moments of frustration with our career in which we're not happy, we're not content, we're not satisfied with the way things are going, and we see others are actually thriving and moving ahead, and somehow we've been the ones who are marginalized and we're missing out. Lead us into a cave. There might be moments in our lives where maybe the circumstances we're in or how we are feeling internally because of the anxiety we're under, we feel under siege and we have a desire to hide and escape It'd be a cave moment. These are opportunities for us to invite God in and to refine our focus on him. And you know, these moments they um they could be produced by our own actions or factors outside of control. In fact, one person who uh, was an early 1900 preacher of Methodist church, he was renowned, his name was W.E. Sangster. He was writing, and in his kind of memoir, he was writing that he, he came over the arc of his life, he came to recognize that there were certain indicators that, that were, at first, he, he didn't like them, but over time, he learned to see them as indicators of a reminder. He needs to refine his focus. I thought I'd share them. He said these are four factors. One of these four would be lights on the dashboard in in his way of saying this is how we have to, this is the reminder. He says, one, I've noticed I have to refine my focus when I've lost peace. When the thoughts that envelop me are of great unrest and personal uncertainty have invaded my heart. I lose peace, I need to refocus. I need to refine my focus. Uh, There are moments when I have lost joy and waves of depression sweep over me and life seems a heavy burden. Uh, That's an indicator. I need to refine my focus. Moments when I have lost taste for my work. We would say passion. And he uses this language. You can see where he was writing from, in what context. He says, I have had to lash myself to it instead of going willingly and gladly into my work. Says, fourthly, I've noticed I need to refine my focus when I find myself in a place where, despite encouragements of one sort or another, there is this underlying sense of failure. We would call those cave moments. And how we respond in those moments how we choose to step into them and walk through them, they determine, they determine whether or not we're able to take advantage of the opportunity or whether we allow it to actually unravel something within us and have its way with us. So how we respond is very, very important. This is where David modeled what it was like to be honest and yet be able to refine himself in the midst of his trial. One moment in particular is found in Psalm 142, in which he found himself. If you open up your handout, we'll read through it. He found himself, we're told, this is a mascal of David. This is a prayer of David. And we're told when he was in the cave, literally. And this is a prayer. And we're told in verse 1 that he says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. And I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. and the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. David... You could sense the agony and the pain and the hurt. In his case, he is literally in a cave. But you know what he's describing? He's describing what a cave feels like. He's saying, I'm, I am in this place in which I am isolated and marginalized. I am completely alone. And you know what he's describing? What loneliness truly feels like. Saying, I'm in this place where there, there are those who have set traps for me. He's almost a sense of paranoia, I'm under siege. There, there, there are those who are chasing me. He, he is describing, in his case, it is both real and metaphorical. And life has put him in this place in which he feels completely alone. And he's crying out to God. You can see it his focus from the get-go. Is on his pain and his complaint. There's no doubt about it. It starts there. And as he progresses, you you hear his his agonizing cry. And then he moves to this place and he says in verse 5, "Listen, I, I cry to you, O Lord." And I say, "You are my refuge." my portion in the land of the living. I'm in this place, hiding in the cave, where I literally have no one. My possessions, they are nowhere to be found. I have nothing to hold on to. And then you could could sense the habit he has trained himself into. That he begins by addressing truly where he's at. He is not pretending. He is not hiding. And yet, his ability to refine, his adjust, how he's viewing things. He says, but in this place of true isolation and loneliness, of being misunderstood, being on the run, in this place, I have recognized something. I've recognized that you are my refuge. I have you. I have nothing else but you. What I have is far more worthy of my focus and what I don't have. You are my portion in the land of living. You are my treasure. I've been stripped of everything, but you know what can never be stripped from me? Is your presence with me. Attend to my cry. I am brought very low. I am not in a good place. Deliver me from my persecutors. In his case, they were real. But they are too strong for me. They are too strong for me. And if his focus started to move towards a place of fixing himself on the God, you know what it ends up moving him towards? It ends up moving him towards a future that he knows is very real. He says, bring me out of my prison that I may give thanks to your name. I, I feel incarcerated by my situation I am being faced by a situation that really has no way out. I don't see it. It's a lose-lose proposition. I am trapped. But you can bring me out of this. You can, God. You can bring me out of this. You can show me the way. In fact, the righteous will surround me, though right now I feel like those who are not right, who are inclined toward my harm are all around me. You will surround me with good people. I know it. You will surround me with good people, and you will deal bountifully with me. You will deal well with me. I look into the future, and it's almost as if he's saying, my present is not permanent, but my future is bright. Because you are with me. You sense it. In a moment, by the way, that was described as one of the lowest points in his life, you could see how he stepped into this cave And this cave ended up becoming the place where he was able to practice what he had long created as a habit of life. He refined his focus. He adjusted how how he was perceiving this and how he was going to walk out of it. You see it. And by the way, this point of being settled where he was both anxious and hopeful, where he was both aware of the struggle he was in, the despair he found himself in, and yet... Able to know God is able to meet him and do something amazing through this situation. Both were present. This, by the way, is what makes David a remarkable model for us. Because some of us lean one direction or another. He was able to hold both intention. And somehow his despair didn't overshadow the ability for God's goodness to prevail. And just so we understand what kind of led to him being in the cave, I thought it would be good for us to look at the account that's shared. It's actually on this passage to the left of it, and we're told in 1 Samuel 21 that what led him to this place. it's, It's actually... Uh, an interesting situation he found himself in. We're told in verse 10 that David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, which we may not know what this exactly means, but Saul would be the king of Israel who was hunting him down like an animal, who saw him, David, not as an ally, but as a threat to his own power and allowed his insecurity and jealousy to treat him like an adversary. And so he caused David to flee for his life. And we're told that he goes to Achish, the king of the Gaths, which, by the way, would be the king of the giant who propelled David to national fame. He would be in the country of his enemy, Goliath. And as he steps into this region, as he's on the run, Moving now into the territory of his enemies, we're told in verse 11 that the servants of Ahish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? And a king being metaphorical. Isn't he the one who actually has ultimate power, whose fame is renowned throughout all of the land? Remember that song? It went viral. We heard it. We heard it echo. Remember that song? Come on, you could sing it. Right? Remember the tune? It went something like, Saul has struck his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Remember how they celebrated David when he entered and we heard it? Who was that? Oh, that's David. David, the one who conquered Goliath, our champion. Remember that? This is him. Remember how they, they, they elevated him to this point of preeminence? Hmm. So they grabbed David. And they bring him before the king. And this is thankfully for David's sake, long before any form of visual identification. There's no photography to speak of. No sketch artists to be able to identify. All they had was what they had heard about him. His reputation. And they bring this man they bring this man who was celebrated by his own people and for, for one of the first times his reputation didn't do him well. We're told that as he sits there in verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Ahish, the king of Gath. This is a very different disposition than the one he had when he was facing Goliath. Long ago was the courage he exhibited that now was covered with nothing but fear. And so he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. You sense the imagery. Which, by the way, we might read this, and it might rub us against our own social sensibilities, but what we have to understand is that David ended up in a culture... And in a time in history and in a region of the world where decorum is extremely valuable, status and self-respect and dignity are things you just do not surrender. David got brought to the place. And this is why people say this was the lowest of lows for him because he was not just a man without a country, without a home, without safety. He was now a man in in the land of his enemies, and not just a man in the land of his enemies, but now he was a man in the land of his enemies who had to strip himself of his dignity and self-respect simply to take in more oxygen and assure that he would survive. And you could see the contrast because a man of his stature would never dare do what he did. To behave as though his man, mind was no longer with him? It was unheard of. In fact, it is so unheard of. The king looks at him and he says, Then Ahish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man, he is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? He's not fit to even be in my presence. No, shall this fellow come into my house and so it? That's the subtext of the culture he is in. And so you could see it. Stripped of his dignity, just to survive. The humiliation he must have felt was deep. And we're told in, in the next chapter, verse 1, that David then, that is the circumstance by which David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. In the cave, in the cave, alone, abandoned, forgotten, remembered by the wrong people, hunted, at a loss of his dignity, feeling depressed, waves of discouragement, and completely isolated in that place, in the cave. was where he decided to refine his focus. And that became one of the biggest hinge points of the remainder of David's life. It's a remarkable story. One that I think has much for us to be able to glean from as we might be walking through whatever challenges we might be facing. Whether we're in one or not, there are a couple things that are worth considering. See, cave moments. I'm just going to put a couple thoughts up there for us. Cave moments, you know what they do? They simplify our lives by loosening the grip of the less important. They force us to become agile. Agile. If we allow them to, if we invite God in, you know what happens? We are much more open to let go of the less important. We really are. And we are much more ab- able to to be satisfied with the things we have and and what is in front of us and what is truly important. These moments in our lives, they can elevate what is more worthy of our attention. And they can loosen us from being beholden to the things that honestly, at the end of the day, they don't add any value to our lives. My parents are immigrants from El Salvador. They came in the late 70s. Um, In many ways, they were running from a civil war that threatened their own livelihood. And they made their way up here. And um, my grandfather joined them, and they were married here. A year later, I was born SF General. Been here my whole life. This is city I love and know. My grandfather became my caretaker as my parents worked hard, long hours, both of them working full-time jobs, not more. And I remember many times I would find myself in a situation in which I would be corrected by my parents. This happened a lot. <laughs> and I would have bad attitude, or I would want something they didn't want to provide or could not provide, and, they would, and, then, and then my response would not be good, and, and I, would, I would kind of, you know, deserve the correction they would give me. And so they would give it to me. And I would inevitably, after these moments that I would find myself in the room, they would leave, my grandfather would enter. Looking back, it's almost as if they had a system. And my grandfather would enter and he would have these conversations with me. And he would start to describe to me. And, 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 that, and what I would always say to him, it's kind of like a ritual. Grandpa, grandpa, in Spanish, abuelito. It's not fair. I know you've never said that, but I, I had the habit of saying that. It's not fair. It's not right said, don't do that. And my grandpa, he doesn't have a filter. Um, he still doesn't have a filter. But back then, you know, I was a little boy and he would describe things to me. That looking back, there's probably a little bit too much detail. <laughs> but he would start talking to me about what it was like to be raised in, in El Salvador. And, you know, he was an orphan. And he didn't have much. I mean, very little. And he would tell me his story. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even correct me. He would just, oh, you know what? I, I remember when I was, and he would just start talking about his childhood. And that would always lead to this. Lewis, you don't understand how good you have it. You have both your parents. You know your mom and your dad. you have a pair of shoes. You have clothes. You have food. You have a shelter. You have a nice bed. And I would think, really? That's the standard? Like, that's the bar? That's why I got it made? And he would describe to me what life was like for him. I always felt like, man, that's extreme. And so my parents took me to where they were from. And we would go through the streets and I would see children without shoes, children without homes, fighting and scrounging for food, children without clothing, and how normal that was. And he would describe to me in in truly horrific detail, the kind of violence he was made to watch on the streets and the amount of pain that erupted in the streets when civil war invaded his country. He said, oh, you should focus on what you have, not what you don't have. Let it go, let it go. So you know these cave moments. You know what, here's the thing. David was in a literal cave, literally running for his life, literally in danger. And there are many people all over the world. That is their situation. That is what they are experiencing. I am gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a leap here and say, it's not going to be most of our situation. And it's not to belittle what we are walking through or what puts us in those caves. But I don't think that's our affliction by and large. You know what our affliction can be most of the time? It's a different kind of affliction. It's the affliction of pleasure and comfort. It's the affliction of abundance and affluence. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it has a different type of trial. Because one strikes us. We understand. We're in danger. The other one, you know what it does? It slowly suffocates us. And all these things, these trappings of life and the pleasures and the technology and everything that we can take full advantage of and we should enjoy them, they have the ability to squeeze us. And our attention and our focus can become frayed and all of a sudden passion starts to leak and the reason for which we were created starts to become something of the back burner and we start losing the very life we were made to live. Because we allow our focus to be encumbered with so many other pursuits. So many other. This is why I believe the writer of the Hebrews, he said to them, listen, this journey of faith, it's like a race, it's like a run. We need to run it well. And running means agility, and agility means being light on our feet. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. This is how we are supposed to live. Light. We are supposed to live it. Light on our feet. Listen, not only the, every weight that slows us down, but especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And this is why. It's not just to live an aesthetic life that inflicts pain and discomfort. It's not that. It's not that. It's so that, listen, we can run the race with endurance that God has set before us that each one of us were meant to run a unique race. And in order to run it, there is a requirement to simplify and to let go and to be willing to release. Bill Heibel's who is a renowned pastor in Chicago, and he's an author, he's written. He's a prolific writer. He wrote this one book that I thought it was worth us sitting with something that he wrote in his book, Simplify. He says, listen, this is the best way to describe what we're talking about, a refined focus. Simplified living is about more than doing less. It's about more than just letting go. It's being who God called us to be with a wholehearted, single-minded focus. See It's walking away from innumerable lesser opportunities in favor of the few to which we've been called and for which we've been created. It's a lifestyle that allows us when our heads hit the pillow at night to reflect with gratitude that our day was well invested and the varied responsibilities our lives are in order. This is the life we're meant to live. And a lot of times if we don't, if we're not careful the rhythms of our life won't wake us up or alert us to the reality that we have an encumbered soul and it's the cave moments that can give us the opportunity to say, oh, okay, maybe I need to adjust my expectations. Maybe I need to let go, forgive. Maybe I need to be okay. Maybe I need to remind myself what's actually important. Because if it does that, you know what also it does? It can help us focus our attention on God's presence. Cave moments help us focus our attention on God's presence. When we find ourselves in the place where we feel isolated and alone and without anyone to care for our soul like David said he did, it is there that we discover, I may have nothing, but you are my portion. You are my portion. And we may not be that in that place right now, But the practice of entering God's presence is a habit worth cultivating when we are not in the cave. David didn't do that for the first time in the cave. David had been going to the gym of God's presence. For when reality hit, instinct kicked in. He had the habit already developed. And it's just that those moments give us the opportunity where loneliness can become solitude with God. Feeling forgotten can be remembered by him and remembering him. What does this look like? In practical ways, I just want to give you a couple examples. One, we've been walking through the book of Psalms, and Tim Keller wrote this devotion in which he takes pieces of a psalm every day, and he'll... Have you just flip to the day? He'll give you a portion of the psalm. He'll give you just a little bit of some thoughts on it, and then some points of reflection and application. To read through this takes five minutes. To take some time out of our frenetic lives and to cultivate God, you are my portion. Refine my focus. Bring me to what really matters. We could do that. We could read His Word. We could do a variety of things. I just want to give you a couple basic things. I know these are basic, but this is what it looks like. James says, we draw near to God, he draws near to us. So what does it look like? One, we begin with worship. And no matter what situation we are in, we declare his worth. And we may not know his worth yet. And so we read what the scriptures say his worth is. We declare it. You know, many words go through our mouth throughout the day. But to train ourselves to speak words such as holy, lovely, beautiful, redeeming, gracious, it's, it has a cleansing effect. To do that every day to the best of our ability, that's a great way to begin our day. It, it, it involves prayer, learning how to. Maybe it's writing our own prayer. Maybe it's writing someone else's prayer. But prayer would be the second way we, we devote ourselves. We refine our focus. We cultivate this habit of in, enveloping his presence. And then we, we, we discover there is something to be grateful for. That no matter what situation we are in, we can express thanksgiving. That there is someone, something we can say, Lord, I thank you. In this cave, I thank you. On this mountaintop, I thank you. Wherever I'm at, to express gratitude. It does something to us. It forms us. And then to be able to reflect upon what we are hearing him as we are inviting him into our lives, we're reflecting on his word, we're thanking him for things, to write down a couple sentences, says, you know what, for my life, the uniqueness, the framework of what you are doing in my life, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. To be able to reflect on this. It's a beautiful thing. Because that becomes the point in which we discover for ourselves this life with God is all about. I remember a little while ago feeling a little bit frustrated with all the activity going on in my life, desiring uh, a more peaceful, less active one, bemoaning my situation. And I know, I'll tell you what, I feel so grateful but we, got, we get into these moments. I was in a cave. I remember reading that Hebrews passage. I remember it, for me, it caused me to reflect, you know what, I thank you for giving me a race to run. Thank you for giving me a race that is my own in your plan. Thank you for helping me learn how to run it well. And so I ask you to help me not compare myself or my race to someone else's. Help me not desire someone else's race. Help me learn how to run this one faithfully with endurance like you direct me to. That word, it's carried me. Because you know what happens is when we reflect on what he, and we cultivate this presence, it gives us focus. It gives us the ability to know, oh, this is, this is what you're asking me to do. This is how you're asking me to move forward. This is it. And when we get to that place, cave moments, if we invite him in, you know what it does? It helps us develop trust anchored in God's promise for a brighter future. A brighter future. This is what David landed on, by the way. He says, you will deal bountifully with me. I'm in this cave alone. But you are my portion, and I look into the future, and it's bright. My present will be, not be my future because you're involved, and when you're involved, it is good. It is good. We might say, you know what, though? David didn't do anything wrong. His conscience didn't accuse him. He didn't feel any shame. He was unjustly being persecuted. Of course he can declare that type of trust. That's why. I love the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this one man who is known as a criminal. He lived a life of crime, and he came to the end of his life being justly executed by Rome's favorite way, crucifixion. And he happens to be crucified that day next to Jesus. And he witnesses Jesus express forgiveness for the ones who were nailing him as he gave his life up as an atonement for all the wrongdoings of anyone who would embrace him and those who were killing him. And as he witnesses this, how gracious and loving he was, even in this hour of extraordinary pain, this criminal who had got it wrong for so long used his final breath to get it right Will you remember me? Will you remember me when you get to your kingdom? You know what Jesus said to him? He said, him this day, I assure you, you will be with me in paradise. Your future is going to be far brighter than you could ever, ever imagine. It is so extraordinary. The grace of God that we can be in a cave, but when we invite him in, it does not matter how we ended up there or what kind of cave it is like. When we invite him in, our future in an instant becomes brighter than our present. And a man who lived a life of crime is not known as a criminal. You know what he's known as? He's known as the man who is in paradise because he reached out to Jesus. It's final moments. We don't get redos. We get remade. And we get to change the future narrative of our story when we refine our focus. Oh, maybe that be the case for us. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and have the band close us in a song that's meant to help us exercise what we just talked about. But Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are able to meet us exactly where we're at. I thank you, God, that there is not one point of pain, struggle, affliction, or trial that is ever wasted when you're invited in. I pray that you would help us, Lord. You would help us be people who refine and adjust what and who we focus on. And that you would have your way in our soul. And that our future will be a future that is written by your grace. Far brighter than our past or perhaps even our present. We ask for your blessing. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.